So, Gabe. Yeah. I have been planning summer explosion this year for the kids. Okay. And I have a brilliant idea. What's that? Okay. So, you know how we do fireworks for the 4th of July? Yeah. Okay. So, here's my idea. I want to have fireworks in the worship center for the kids. So, when it's summer explosion, the worship center explodes. What do you think about it? Uh, we might have to call the fire department. Okay, but you think we can do it? Maybe. Oh. oh. Holy cow! That was weird! Anyway. You think we can do it? You know, I really don't think Chris would appreciate it. Okay. <gasps> do you think you heard us? I think we're in the clear. Now, Gabe, we gotta finish talking about summer explosion. Yeah. So, since you think that fireworks aren't gonna be a good idea in the worship center, I have an idea that's perfect for summer explosion. What's that? Confetti cannons. Uh, let's get out of here. Yeah. Cool. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life, and we're so excited that you're here to join us, especially if you're here for the very first time and you've never been here before. You know, New Life was created for you. We had you in mind when New Life started, and, uh, and so we're just excited and honored that you would wake up at, at 8.30 uh, or earlier. Well, if you got here at 8.30, you definitely woke up earlier. But you would wake up before 8.30 and that you would get here by 8.30 on a cold morning. So thank you so much for, for being here and joining us. We're honored to have you here. Um, we're honored to have you as our guest. This morning, we're in part three of a six-part series called Elephants, and uh, it's really about some of these big issues that uh, our, our culture has in it that, that, generally speaking, we don't want to talk about. Uh, and they can make conversations really awkward and really difficult, and so a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Chris started this series. He talked about abortion two weeks ago, and he did a really great job with, with speaking about abortion, both in grace and in love and in truth, and so if you missed that, go back and watch it online. And last week, Pastor Brad... Uh, spoke about uh, racism, and, and it was really powerful as well. And um, I'm going to take a moment and welcome our online audience, because I typically forget about you, Facebook. I don't want to forget about you. We're really glad that you're here with us as well. So if you missed that, that racism message, I would encourage you, you can get it on the New Life app, or you can go on our website and you can watch it there. But catch, catch up on this series and, and really hear what we're, we're saying. And, and so this week, we're going to be talking about suicide. And, uh, and suicide is obviously a big subject in our culture, and, and uh, it's something that really affects all of us. It's one of those elephants that has impacted probably every single person in the room over this weekend uh, in, in one way or another. And so as we're looking at that, and, and we're going to be talking about that uh, this morning, 
And we're going to be looking at some, some key Bible verses that talk about it. And uh, my goal and my heart is, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, that we help and equip you to enter into that conversation. Um, because it's a difficult conversation to enter into, a conversation about suicide. Um, and, and to be able to help people. And if you're on the opposite side of that and you are suicidal right now and you're thinking about ending your life, my goal is to be able to bring you hope and to show you that God wants to fight for you and that he loves you and that you're beautifully and wonderfully made and that he cares deeply for you. So before we get into that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read this passage from the book of John. We're actually not going to expand much on, the, on this passage, but I want it to set the tone for everything that we're going to talk about this morning. But first, let's just take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you. I pray right now that the Holy Spirit would just fill me up and that you would just speak through me this morning. The, uh, the things that need to be said would be said, and the things that don't need to be heard wouldn't be said. And so I just pray, God, that you would use me this morning, that you would open up all of our, our hearts and our ears, God. Make us people who have ears that hear so that, uh, that we can understand, Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I am going to be drinking from this a fair amount because I've been sick for two weeks. Someone brought me this super cool throat coat tea last night, so that's awesome. Um, So let me read here from the book of John. It's John chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 17. It says this, before the uh, festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his time had come to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them fully. Jesus and his disciples were sharing the evening meal. The devil had already provoked Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the table and took off his robes. Picking up a linen towel, he tied it around his waist. When, then he poured water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he was wearing. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, "'Lord, are you going to wash my feet?' Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't have any place with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Always the zealous man, Peter. Jesus responded, those who have bathed need only to have their feet washed because they are completely clean. You disciples are clean, but not every one of you. He knew who would betray him. That's why he said, not every one of you is clean. After he washed the disciples' feet, he put on his robes and returned to his place at the table. He said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak correctly because I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too must wash each other's feet. I have given you an example. Just as I have done, you must also do. I assure you, servants aren't greater than their masters, nor are those who are sent greater than the one who sent them. Since you know these things, you will be happy if you do them. (coughs) Elementary school held the first memories for me of wanting to end my life. I was in fourth grade at the time, and uh, we, you know, I had like... um, I, I, you know, a lot of people had rougher childhoods than me. My, mine wasn't difficult, but in a lot of ways, it wasn't easy. In elementary school, in like second and third grade, my mom became really, really sick, and the doctors didn't know what was wrong or what was going on, and we didn't know whether she would live or not. She spent a lot of time in the hospital, so I was always kind of thinking about death just because of what was going on with mom. Um, I remember coming home and seeing ambulances in the driveway and getting picked up by my uncle and aunt because they were trying to get my mom out of the house and stuff after school. And, um, you know, my dad worked a lot, and we were, I'm sure we were paying, like, hospital bills and things, so we didn't have a lot of money. And so, you know, most of my clothes were hand-me-down for my cousins. They were just, like, just outside of 
being cool and they're all a little worn down and you know kids are relentless and so in elementary school I was often their target I didn't have cool stuff or whatever and so I was often the target and so through like a a long couple of years of being bullied and and whatever have you um I uh I really only had like one friend left his name was Alex and um I don't know if you've ever been in a place in life where you have like one friend left. And that, that was like where I was. And so um, Alex was, but he was like popular. And like all the kids really liked Alex, but no one really liked me. And because he grew faster than me and everybody else in our entire grade. So he was like the football star. That ended like in middle school when everybody outgrew him. But initially he was like the first growth burst, right? And uh, I remember this kid named Matt. And Matt, I remember coming up to me one day in school and telling me that Alex had been going around and telling everybody else, because he was a friend of Alex, and he didn't want Alex to be my friend. So he went around telling, that Alex was going around telling everybody else that I wore a bra. Now, this is a silly joke, right? Like, if you think about it, like, could have Matt not been more creative, right? But, you know, to a fourth grader who doesn't really know what a bra is, that's terrifying, Right? And so I was, I was so embarrassed, and I was so hurt, and it just felt like my last friend, now it wasn't true, Alex wasn't saying these things, but it felt like my last friend had betrayed me. And at the time, I had already been really focused on death because of what was going on with mom, and so, you know, I remember in elementary school, I remember like, I was, a scared, I was really scared of the dark, but I remember like going to bed at night and not being able to sleep and having like all of these thoughts. I remember laying in bed thinking about like what would it be like if mom died and what would it be like if dad died and what would it be like if my brother died? And then I, I would inevitably think like what would it be like if I died? Like what would people think? Would, would people miss me? What would my family think? What would my parents think? Would I leave a note behind? What would I want to say in a note that I would leave to my parents if I were to die? And I remember, like, walking through all of that. And then there was this one night, it was right after the bra incident, I had come home and I had thought I had lost my last friend. And I remember I was laying on the floor of uh, our bathroom and I finally confessed to my, my mother what was going on about being made fun of at school and about thinking about, like, is it worth it? I remember saying something like, I don't know that it's worth it. And I was, I was conveying, like, I don't know that I want to live anymore. And now looking back on that, I don't know that I was in grave danger. I mean, I, I didn't really know what it was to be dead. I was in fourth grade. And, and I didn't have a plan, you know, I, I didn't have access to a, a firearm, and I didn't know how to, that would be the only way I would have known how to end my life. I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know that I was really in, in genuine danger that evening, but I do remember the feeling of reaching out for help. I, I remember that night, I, I got done t- telling my mom everything, and then I called my friend Alex, and I told him he wasn't invited to my birthday anymore, because it's it's the biggest slam you can give to someone who's no longer your friend in fourth grade. Is like, You're not coming to my birthday. Now I have no one to invite because i got no friends left, right? Like, like sad but true. Like, I'm not inviting you. I'm going to eat my cake all by myself and be sad about it. Um, but, like, that was, that was like my slam on him, right? And I remember, I remember doing that, and I remember running around my living room like a, like a frantic person, jumping off the couch. It was like this weight got lifted off of me. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you finally let something out, that you talked about something, and it was like a weight was lifted off of you. 
I remember coming home from Haiti. It's funny how your memory works, but I came home from Haiti. My wife and I went on a mission trip right after we got married, and we came home after 10 days of just sitting on cement, basically, and we came home and just fell into our bed, and the feeling of being in our bed was amazing. Now, I've climbed into bed thousands of times, but that time I will never forget, and I've told people what was going on in my life thousands of times, but that moment... With my mom on the bathroom floor, I will never forget. Just won't. It was so powerful. I've never experienced anything like it again. And you know, I don't know that I was in genuine trouble in that moment, but I do know that when I reached out, it changed my perspective. And it may have saved my life. My mom was still sick. I still didn't have friends. I wasn't getting new clothes. In fact, I remember, and this is horribly embarrassing, we went out right after that because they were worried about me, and we bought new clothes for me, and I got a Nike t-shirt and a green Nike hat, and I went and got a new haircut, and someone tried to shave a Nike swoosh into the back of my head, and it did not go well, and it looked real bad, which made me, forced me to wear the hat. Um, yeah, that's funny. I just remembered that. This has nothing to do with my message, but it is funny. Listen, I'm not trying to say that my thoughts of suicide as a fourth grader compare to someone who's in a place of desperation, who's an adult, who's plagued by depression, and um, who's constantly plagued by thoughts of suicide. I'm not trying to make that comparison. I'm not trying to say they're the same thing. All I'm saying is I do know what it feels like to be in a situation where you don't have many options and you can't see a way out. And I think, honestly, I think most of us know that feeling. Listen, suicide is an epidemic. I have some statistics. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And in 2016, there were twice as many suicides as homicides. It's the second leading cause of death, the second among people ages 10 to 24, second only to accidental death. There's an average of 129 suicides a day in our country. And in 2017 alone, there was an estimated 1.4 million suicide attempts. White males account for almost 78% of suicide deaths. And most of them are middle-aged. And in 2017, over 47,000 people died by suicide in our country alone. And we can look at statistics all day long. We know it's a problem. But all that any of those numbers really end up meaning is that there isn't a person in this room who hasn't been affected by suicide in some way. Either we are an attempted suicide survivor or we know someone who's an attempted suicide survivor, or we've lost somebody, or we know someone who's lost somebody to suicide. This elephant affects us all. And unlike some of the other elephants in this series, we can all agree that suicide sucks, and we need to bring it to an end. You may not agree with what the Bible has to say about abortion, or about racism, or about sexuality. I hope that you will, but you may not. But universally, I think we can all agree that we should bring an end to the suicide epidemic in our world because it shatters families. It leaves people behind to pick up pieces without any answers. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of students. I was a youth pastor here at New Life for six years, and I'd done youth ministry for four years before that. And then I continue to work with youth even now. And it's amazing how many teenagers I've worked with over the years who have considered ending their life. Almost every single teenager that I've had a chance to work with 
counsel, talked to deeply, has had at least at one point in their life they've considered ending their life. Almost all of them. Most of them have lost a friend to suicide at one time or another. Almost every single one of them, almost, and I, I, maybe every single one I've ever really spoken to, has counseled someone who was suicidal either over social media or some video game chat. They've talked with somebody who was about to end their life and they noticed the signs over something they posted on Instagram or on Snapchat or they were talking to them in an in a Xbox group and they've, they've counseled them. I, I've texted back and forth with kids who are like, listen, my friend is thinking about killing themselves. What do I do? I'm on Xbox with them. And I've helped them walk through talking to them and calling the police and all of that. Our, our youth are growing up in a culture where suicide is the norm. That you just grow up acquainted with it. That your life is going to be affected by it. It's a normal part of growing up. So we know that suicide's a problem, so what can we do? As followers of Jesus, we know that we should have some sort of response. We should probably be doing something, but the subject is often so painful and we feel so horribly unprepared to deal with it that usually we end up avoiding the conversation altogether until we or someone we know loses someone to suicide and then we're left with questions like, what could have we done? How didn't we see the signs? Could have I reached out? I should have done something different. So what can we do? It's really our take-home point today. Our take-home point is the one point that I, I'm going to seek to make that we can take home and live out in the coming week, and it's this. God's love requires that we love one another. God's love requires that we love one another. This is the ultimate answer to the suicide epidemic. And it may seem oversimplified, and it may seem like, wow, this is, this is really dumbed down. Like, this cannot possibly be the answer. But if we take this truth and apply it to our lives, it transforms our lives, and it can transform the world. In the book of uh, 1 John 4.19, it says this, We love each other because he, God, loved us first. We love each other because he loved us first. This verse doesn't mean that we should love each other. It doesn't say that we're commanded to love one another. It says that we simply will. When we experience the love of God, we will, by default, Love one another. It will just happen. And there's nothing that we can do about it. This supernatural love was what drove the first church. When the church started, they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, who owned the world. In this small grouping of 100-some people who quickly became 4,000-some people, which isn't that many in comparison to the world, by the way, started a church. And the Romans tried to squash them and they couldn't because of their supernatural love for one another. And it spread like wildfire to the point that it literally from the inside out overthrew the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire became Christian. This supernatural love was something that they had that no one else had. And they didn't have fancy buildings. They met in homes because they were being hunted. And they didn't have great children's ministries. And they didn't have relevant student ministries. And they didn't have the lights or the sound, and they didn't even have compelling preachers. They had supernatural love. Paul, who's, who's arguably the most influential man in all of church history, right, Paul, 
He was so dry and so boring that when he preached, that there's actually a passage that he droned on so long that someone fell asleep and fell out a window and died. People were literally dying to get away from Paul's sermons. To be fair, he rose him to life, brought him back to life, and then I'm sure he had to go back and listen to the rest of the sermon. He's not allowed to sit near the window anymore. The point is the supernatural love of followers of Jesus for one another and for those that they encountered is what made the church work. And to tell you the truth, it's what makes the church work today. When we experience the love of God, we love each other supernaturally. Let me put it this way. When God loves us, we will naturally love one another supernaturally. We will naturally love one another supernaturally. In other words, it will just happen. It will be organic. We won't have to try. When we accept the love of God and we experience that love of God daily, we will naturally love one another supernaturally. And for so many years in so many ways, the church has gotten this wrong. We've created really big evangelistic crusades. And I'm not saying anything against them. And we've had really great Bible studies to attend, and we need those. And we've built really fantastic buildings, and fantastic buildings are great. I love our new galaxy area. But so many times we've forgotten about the love of God. And when we have forgotten about the love of God, we don't experience the love of God, and we learn a lot about God, but we never get to know God. Hear that? We learn a lot about God. We know a lot about him, but we never get to know him. And when we never get to know God, we never get to experience the love of God. And when we never get to experience the love of God, well, then it's really hard to love one another. Because the thing that fuels our love for one another is being loved by God. And if you're struggling to love the people in your life, perhaps you're struggling to accept and receive love from God himself. Because we will naturally love one another supernaturally when we experience the love of God. The proper response to suicide is to be loved by God and to love one another. We live in a culture that is desperate for connection and is starving for love. And while technology has offered a form of fabricated connection, people are unhappier, more depressed, and more desperate than they have ever been. The entertainment and the indulgence that our culture offers, the distraction, hasn't fixed our problems. In fact, it's usually only ever made it worse. So what do we do? What's our response? Our response is to love the people that God has put in our path. We need to go out of our way to care for people. Let me put it this way. We need to set aside our busy lives to be with someone in the darkest part of theirs. We need to set aside our busy lives to be with someone in the darkest part of theirs. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If you're here today and you've lost someone to suicide, I am not saying that you didn't love that person enough or that you weren't there for them when they needed you. I am not making a statement about any specific situation because the reason that people choose to end their life through suicide are as many as people who end their life through suicide. What I'm saying is that the universal response the overarching response to the suicide epidemic as followers of Jesus is to love people and to be loved by God. All too often, we as followers of Jesus are so focused on our own goals that we can't take a break to go sit in the mud with somebody else. But as followers of Jesus, every one of us is called to a mess. And I might not know what that mess is for you, but we are all called to 
a mess. The person considering suicide often doesn't want to end their life, but they feel like they don't have any other options. They're desperate. They usually feel like the very people that they could reach out to for help would actually be better off if they weren't in their life. They feel like a burden. They feel like they're dragging people down. The devil whispers lies into their ear and into their thoughts that plays off of their emotions and makes them feel completely alone, like they have no place to turn. And in the end, suicide often ends up seeming like the selfless thing to do rather than what it is in reality, which is the selfish thing to do. People actually think they're doing somebody else a favor. They believe that by ending their life so that you're not caught up in their burden and in their problems. The enemy twists thoughts and manipulates emotions. And without someone stepping into the situation, many people will never escape. So if you know someone who's struggling, and I'm sure that you do, it is your calling to step into their mess. As a follower of Jesus, you are called to a mess. But what if the person for you has already ended their life by suicide? What if they're not here anymore? What then? The question I get most is, where are they? Where are they now? And here's the thing. I'm not the judge of the living, of living and the dead. Like, God alone is. So I don't have an answer to that question. But that is the question that I get more than any other. Where are they? And you know, a lot of times people have heard other Christian backgrounds who've taught that if you die by suicide, that you're in hell. And that's where you go. But when I look at my Bible, that's not what I read. In fact, the only thing that I see from the Word of God that can separate us from the love of God is not having a relationship with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that relationship with Jesus in a moment. So what if you're on the opposite side of this conversation? We've talked about what do I do as a follower of Jesus to respond to the subject of suicide. What if I'm the one considering ending my life? Maybe you're sitting here, you're next to your husband or wife or your mom and dad, and you've been thinking about that and you haven't told them yet. Maybe you've tried and no one knows. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you haven't tried or, or maybe you have and you've told someone and you are getting help. Either way, what do you do? I think that there's this really great section of the book of Exodus that applies. So I'm going to tell you a story. The Israelite people had been in Egypt for about 400 years. They came originally because there was a famine in their homeland. They showed up and this brother named Joseph was one of the rulers in Egypt. So the Israelites came with their families and they settled down in a place called the Goshen Valley. And they became shepherds. And over generations, they began to multiply like crazy. God used it as this human incubator to populate his nation. And after a few generations of Egyptian royalty, they became intimidated. And they forgot about the favor that had been shown to the Israelites. They were afraid that they would overpopulate the Egyptians because of how quickly they were spreading. So they enslaved them. And for hundreds of years, the Israelites made bricks for the audacious building projects of the Egyptians. But they didn't stop growing. Their population continued to expand rapidly. So the Egyptian pharaoh took all the baby boys that were under two and threw them in the Nile River, where they drowned or were killed by crocodiles. And in that horrific moment, the Israelites cried out to God, and God responded. 
and sent them a deliverer, and his name was Moses. Now, I'm not going to go deeply into the backstory of Moses, but he was one of the few survivors of the baby massacre, and he grew up as Egyptian royalty. Then he was expelled from Egypt, and he grew up in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 years as a shepherd before God sent him back to Egypt to free his people. Egypt was one of the most powerful fighting forces in the world at the time. And he was to go free hundreds of thousands of slaves without an army. He was to go win a war without an army. So him and Aaron, his brother, went and they talked to Pharaoh. And miraculous things happened, insane things happened, to the point where Pharaoh was so disheartened by the power of God, he was so intimidated that he let the Israelites go. And Moses led them into the wilderness. But they took a kind of wonky path. It doesn't say wonky in the Bible, but it's wonky. And they got to the Red Sea. And when they got to the Red Sea, Pharaoh changed his mind. And he sent his army and his chariots out after the Israelites to either bring them back or to murder them, kill them in the desert. So the Israelites, imagine you're in their camp. You've been freed from slavery. You saw the miraculous work of God. And you're in the camp. And Moses, your leader, brings you to the Red Sea. <laughs> and then you hear the war horses, the chariots, the drums, the horns of the Egyptian army. Can you imagine the panic? You're, you're slaves. When you left Egypt, you didn't leave with chariots. You didn't leave with swords. You're common people. And you're there with your children. And you have an impassable sea in front of you and the most lethal fighting force in the known world behind you who's closing in, who's coming to kill you. Imagine that point of desperation. Imagine the panic as you see the chariots cresting the hill. And there's no place to go. No one who's going to come save a whole bunch of slaves. No one knows where you are. No one to come rescue you. This is the feeling of many people who are contemplating suicide. They're in that type of desperate situation. They don't feel like there's anybody who can come help them. They don't feel like there's any rescue on its way. They're stuck between the sea and the army, and they're running out of time. That's the point of desperation that most people are in. And in Exodus 14, 14, Moses stands up, and he says this to the people, and it's so powerful and so profound, yet so simple. He says this to the people, right? They're in this situation. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. The Common English Bible puts it this way. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. Imagine. Here comes the Egyptian army, the impassable sea behind you, and your leader says, listen, just keep still. 
Many times when someone is suicidal, we'll encourage them and say things like, well, remember all that God has done for you and, and I, you, know, you, you have so much to live for. Listen, the Israelites had seen insane things. They saw plagues of frogs and locusts. They saw fire from the sky. They saw the Nile River turn to blood. They saw the angel of death sweep through the city at night and pass their homes, slaughtering every firstborn Egyptian male. They had seen unbelievable things. The Egyptians gave them their silver and gold as they left as slaves. They plundered the Egyptians without an army. They won a war without a battle. They had seen miraculous things. The reality is we often forget past goodness in present desperation. You hear that? We often forget past goodness in present desperation. The Israelites knew all about the goodness of God. They had just experienced it. But it was in their past. And in light of their current desperate situation, they had forgotten. And Moses tells them, just keep still. In situations that seem impossible, God finds possibility. In situations that seem impossible, God finds possibility. Then from behind the Israelites, a great pillar of fire falls from heaven and defends them from the Egyptian army. And Moses takes his staff and strikes the Red Sea. And a great wind blows through and splits the sea to the point that it actually dries the sea floor. And the Israelites walk across the sea floor through the middle of an impassable sea while the Egyptians are fought off by God himself. And they watch all night as God fights for them. They just had to keep still. And today you may feel like you are between the army and the sea. You may be in that place of desperation. So can I encourage you? Can I encourage you and tell you that God wants to fight for you? He's whispering to you, just keep still. Let me fight for you. That he sees your impossible situation and that he sees possibility. He knows about your family. He knows about your kids. He knows about your marriage. He knows about your health. He knows about your job and your finances. He knows about your past. He knows about the situation that you're in, the depression that you feel, the desperation that you have. He knows about all of it and that he wants to fight for you, that he loves you, that he's fearfully and wonderfully created you, that he knit you together. And that same God who created the universe and threw the stars in the sky wants to fight for you. That as you look around and see nothing but impossible situations, that there's a God who sees possibility because he loves you and you can rely on him. Here's the reality. Today, if you're here and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, maybe you've resisted for a long time and you've put it off. You've heard about Jesus and maybe it was just not your thing. But you know that you need someone to fight for you today. Then it, today's the day. Today's the day to ask Jesus to come into your life. Listen, asking Jesus into your life isn't a magical wand. It's not going to take your problems away. They're still going to be there. But we do firmly believe here at New Life that in Jesus, you will find the answer to every obstacle that you face. We believe that. Not just because the Bible says it, the Bible does say it, but because we've experienced it. 
And so if you're here today and you feel like you're facing impossible situations and you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, and I'm encouraging you to say this simple prayer. It's simple, not easy, because it, it means giving up your entire life to him. But to say this simple prayer with me, if this is you and you want Jesus in your life, would you just say this? You can say it in your heart. You can say it out loud. I don't care, but just say it with me. Jesus, I can't do this on my own anymore. I want you to come into my life. I need you to come into my life and fight for me today. I believe you died on the cross and that you rose again. Amen. If you said that simple prayer, we really do believe that it doesn't mean that your life will become simple or easy, but we do believe that you have every answer to any obstacle or problem that you're going to face. And one of those answers is through the family, through this, here, through this church. Because God gave us the church so that we would rely on one another and that we would reach out to one another, that we would love one another. So if you're in that place of desperation today, would you please reach out to someone? Would you please ask for help? Would you please extend a hand? We want to be there for you. And you may have come into this place today and you might come in here every week and you might look and like, man, there are a lot of people with their perfect lives and they got everything together. But from experience, this place is full of screwed up people with screwed up lives, with screwed up histories who are forgiven by Jesus. And we're far from perfect, but we are here to help. And one of the ways that we're seeking to help this week is we have an organization with us. It's a nonprofit here in Butler County called iRise. IRISE was founded and is led by Christy Knights, who's a member of uh, the New Life family here. And their, their goal is to eradicate suicide starting right here in Butler County. And at the end of service today, um, they're actually going to have our prayer partners up here, but Christy's going to be up here as well at the end of service with one of our prayer partners. And if you're in that place or you know someone who's in that place and you want prayer or you need help, would you please come up and talk to them? Would you please come up in prayer? Would you please come up and talk to Christy? Would you please reach out a hand? Please do not allow the stigma of suicide to prevent you from getting help and keep you in that desperate situation. Please reach out. And if you're in a place today where you've been affected by suicide, that your life has been impacted by it, and I believe that basically every single person here, that's the case. And they have a table out there. Paula, their vice president's out there tonight, or today. And... Um, they have a couple of things. One, they, they have this book. It's called um, Unsung Heroes. They don't have many left, but they're going to be selling some, and you can, <coughs> you can buy it, and they're going to send us some more, and we'll get it to you. Um, this is a collection of stories, and one of the ways that actually iRise got started, um, this is a collection of stories from people who've either attempted suicide and survived or who have been close to attempting suicide. And they wrote their stories in, and they edited those down, and they put them in this. This is a book to give you hope, to know that you're not alone. And if you have someone in your life who is thinking about committing suicide or you're worried about them and they're in that desperate situation, I encourage you to get this book because I read it and it helped me understand how people think who are thinking about ending their lives. It helped me to understand what was going through their head. It helped me to understand their thought patterns. It gave me a little glimpse inside their world. So if you have someone in your life that you're worried about or is suicidal, pick up the book. Listen, the thing's 15 bucks online, but it's five bucks today for you. If you're here at New Life today, this weekend, it's five bucks for you. So you can go give them five bucks. And if you don't have the five bucks, just go up there and tell them, I need the book. I don't have the money, I need the book. They're just going to give you the book. Or they'll sign you up for the book, and we'll get you the book. Because we really think it's important that you have this resource in your hand. Either to find hope or to help people who need hope find hope. 
reach out. And that leads us with our next step today, which really comes back to those of us in the room who we don't know how to deal with suicide, how to address it. It's this. Our next step is I will reach out to support someone going through a hard time this week. Listen, we all know someone who's going through a hard time. We all know someone who's going through a difficult time, and you do not know what's going through their head because you don't know what people think and feel. You only know what they say and do. And when I said that next step, that we're going to reach out to someone who's going through a rough time this week, someone was in your head. You thought of somebody because we all know somebody. I know somebody. I know more than one somebody. So I'm asking you to reach out to them this week. Send a text. Make a phone call. Invite them to lunch. Go sit in the mess with them and love them. Let's pray. Father, the suicide epidemic is daunting. Sometimes it feels like we're not sure how we can make a dent or what we can do. But the thing that we can do that will make the biggest impact is to be loved by you and to love others. And I pray this week as we go out of this place today, that we would be compelled to love each and every person that we encounter. That we wouldn't be so focused with our busy lives, our hectic schedules, or the things that we have to do to not love people. I pray that people would be the thing that matter most to us because it's the thing that matters to you. And I pray that we would love the people that we encounter this week. I pray this in your name. Amen.